Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola. I'm very pleased to be joined by Dan Berger, who is an anti-prison activist, co-founder of Decarcerate Pennsylvania, the author of the book Captive Nation, Black Prison Organizing in the Civil Rights Era, and he's also a professor uh, of Comparative Ethnic Studies at Washington Bothell. We have him on the show today to talk about the book, uh, The Collective Work of Grief, uh, Rebellious Morning, The Collective Work of Grief. Uh, This is a continuation of a series we're doing um, about uh, grief and loss uh, based on contributions in this uh, book, which I thought was um, uh, a really good collection of pieces. And so thank you for joining us, Dan. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Uh, And so to start off uh, more generally, but obviously within the context, what we're having you on to talk about is uh, the piece you did about AIDS, AIDS activism and organizing within prisons. Um, and uh, you do an interview with uh, David Gilbert, and you can introduce him um, at, at some point in our discussion. But to start off more generally, uh, more generally, why do you think we should uh, not bury or, or make private our pain when dealing with grief or loss? Because it's really the core uh, aspect of this book that is really emphasized is that this isn't something we should be uh, keeping private. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Grief surrounds us all, uh, and sadly, it, it seems to surround us with increasing intensity and, and increasing pain as we confront everything from climate catastrophe to incipient fascism to to so much else. Um, and so, I think the best organizing, the most kind of humane and, and um, sort of radical politics is one that is able to account for our full selves. Uh, and so given given the centrality of mourning and loss and grief and the ability of mourning, loss and grief to actually generate new forms of solidarity and sociality and sort of communion, um, I think we have, you know, both a uh, responsibility to acknowledge it, as well as a, a kind of, um, you know, a kind of opportunity, which is to say, you know, working and thinking and operating where where our lives are most whole um, is is the most powerful work we can do. So you spoke to, um, or so you exchanged letters with David Gilbert. And uh, this is, um, uh, I'll let you introduce him, Uh, but he really was a way to get into uh, how uh, people within prisons were mobilizing grief into action around AIDS organizing. Yeah, so so David is someone who has been a friend and a mentor of mine for almost 20 years. And and so when Cindy first approached me about the book and, and possibly contributing to it, uh, particularly with an eye towards thinking about how grief kind of haunts organizing in prison and organizing against prison. Um, this was, you know, writing with David, doing this interview with David was was the thing that came immediately to mind. Um, so for, for people listening who might not know who he is, David was a member of Students for a Democratic Society, anti-war and civil rights uh, and youth power organization in the 1960s. 
He later joined the Weather Underground Organization in the 1970s and um, spent spent most of the 70s kind of um, underground in different kinds of anti-racist solidarity uh, work. And after the Weather Underground fell apart in the late 70s, he sort of resumed public life for a time and, and then went, went back underground to try and uh, continue sort of operating with uh, operating in solidarity with anti other anti-racist um, kind of militant groups, including the Black Liberation Army. And he was arrested in October of 1981 when a unit of the Black Liberation Army with um, with other supporters attempted to. Uh, rob a, a Brinks truck, um, and the robbery went terribly wrong and uh, resulted in uh, two police officers and a, and a security guard being uh, killed, and then later in one member of the BLA being killed, um, and several several people being arrested really throughout the 1980s uh, in, in connection with that event. So David was one of those people um, and was sentenced to serve between 75 years and life in prison. And in New York, there's they have what what is kind of erroneously called uh, truth and sentencing laws. So that means 75 years is is 75 years. There's no shortcut. There's no, you know, earn good time or anything like that. So in effect, he's serving uh, what what comrades in Pennsylvania have called death by incarceration. So even though it's not a, it's not a death sentence, literally, um, to have, to have 75 years, uh, in prison is, is in effect a death sentence. Um, and, you know, David has been really remarkable uh, as have a number of other political prisoners from that generation, uh, in, in remaining committed to his values and principles of, anti-racism, of solidarity, of social justice. Uh, and so when he saw the kind of devastation that the AIDS virus was wreaking on uh, the prison population, as well as black communities and queer communities on the streets, um, he was really motivated to, to act. Uh, and I think in particular, as he talks about in his interview, it was the the death of his co-defendant, Kwesi Balagoon, who was a former member of the Black Panther Party and later a member of the Black Liberation Army. Um, and Kwesi died in 1986 of AIDS-related illness. Um, and it was the kind of tremendous outpouring of grief among other men in prison that, that really spark something in David. Uh, and so working together with uh, someone named Mujahid Farid and the guy named Papo Nieves, uh, David co-founded this group called the Prison Education Project on AIDS, Prisoner Education Project on AIDS, uh, which was sort of modeled on the peer education efforts that were happening in queer communities in the streets uh, and really saved an untold number of lives uh, throughout the New York state prison system in the 1980s uh, and 1990s. And for their life-saving efforts, uh, David, Farid, and Papo were transferred to different prisons across the state uh, and, and were harassed and, and subject to, to other kind of efforts to try and stop their work. Well, let's get into this, uh, the peer education program and, and, and what that sort of 
entailed, what what kind of a, a program it was, and and perhaps what made it revolutionary in that time for uh, David and others to be putting together such a program. Yeah, great question. I mean, I think you know we have to remember that at that time the government's response to HIV and AIDS, both at the at the federal government, right, uh, as well as sort of at the smaller scale of you know, the, the government of the prison, right, the warden and, and other state officials, uh, was one of explicit criminal malicious negligence, um, you know, denying that there was uh, a problem and, and denying to dedicate what, you know, funds to research, um, promoting or participating in, in all manner of racist and homophobic uh, stigmas of people and people with AIDS or people with HIV. And so there was, you know, serious talk in the country as a whole about quarantining people who were HIV positive, um, you know, forcing them to to get tattooed that they're HIV positive or wear, you know, wear badges identifying them as HIV positive. Had things that were, you know, in it now might, you know might be sort of represented in, in dystopian fiction, like The Handmaid's Tale, right? Um, but, but things that really ha- had a lot in common with what, you know, how the, the Nazi regime and other genocidal regimes have, have sort of targeted their, their enemies and how they've, you know, produced their own sort of racial scapegoats. Um, and so this was a really, a really deadly, deadly time. Um, and, and so part of what people were doing everywhere around the country was, was trying to um, promote the kind of best practices to, to avoid transmission uh, of HIV, trying to uh, encourage more support for, for research, trying to get life-saving medicine in the hands of people who needed it, um, and also countering the kinds of racism and homophobia and other, other stigma that the government and other uh, reactionary entities were, were putting out. And so part of the, the idea for doing peer education was the recognition that even as people were, were pressing on the government to not, um, you know, to not quarantine people, to, to put out true information, right, that things like holding hands or, you know, sharing drinks or things like that, that they sort of, one cannot get, uh, that, that, that HIV was not spread through those sorts of casual transmissions. Um, but it was also the idea that, that, you know, people in prison were not going to trust the administration, right? Had, had no reason to trust the administration, um, as, as the administration is sort of actively, you know, promoting, uh, promoting their death. And so part of what makes peer education radical, as you asked, is that it was, you know, prisoners achieving some measure of their own power, right? And sort of recognizing that people in prison, you know, had reason to trust each other and were more likely to trust each other than they would trust the administration. And so part of what David describes in our interview is all of the challenges that people had to confront in in organizing those peer education models. Right? So the kinds of stigma around, uh, well, well, the kinds of homophobia that happened at the um, administration level or the kinds of stigma around drug use, um, you know, were also being circulated within prison. And so part of what they had to confront as peer educators um, was the kind of, you know, the ways that that people themselves, you know, imbibed some of that deliberate 
uh, misinformation. David wrote a really powerful essay at the time called you know, AIDS, about AIDS conspiracy theories um, because there were, there's a, a white supremacist, I'm forgetting his name, but who was promoting this idea that HIV doesn't cause AIDS and was really arguing against what were known um, uh, what were what were known things to reduce the the threat of transmission, um, and he was sending that into prison, uh, and really targeting black prisoners, um, and so they they had they, these are the kinds of things right that that they had to confront, and they realized that that peer education and and working together as prisoners, working together across the kinds of um, racial and religious barriers that prison promotes and thrives upon, uh, was the way to do it. So David worked you know in particular with. Uh, his, uh, with Mujahid Farid, who I mentioned, but also with Albert Noah Washington, who was a former member of the Black Panther Party, who was a imam and a, a widely respected cleric with, within the prison, um, to really counter those kinds of misinformations and, and conspiracy theories that were um, spreading the epidemic throughout New York State prisons. Yeah, I believe the the white supremacist uh, wasn't it William Douglas? Yes, that's who, right. Who was uh, is raised and and I actually I jotted down a quote that I wanted to bring just because I'm glad you touched upon this because it was it's perhaps something I wasn't prepared to expect um, or uh, contemplate uh, as as a potential problem that uh, you would have but then it really hits home how uh, the 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 residual effects of systemic racism and also the the just culture of systemic racism uh, permeates with within prisons and so you know as a as it's it's not really the most um incredible passage that david wrote but just basically he says the main reaction among prisoners especially among black prisoners was that the state killed Kawasi Balagoon, um, and and then you know that he, he was infected in some way, and I was um, I was really fascinated by the commitment and dedication that he had to debunking it um, and doing it in a way that would fit within uh, the fact that they had a very well placed mistrust of the administration and how uh, people were handling the prison so it wasn't beyond the possible uh it wasn't beyond the realm of possibility that they were perhaps going to be infected because most of the people who run the institution don't see them as human um and so i guess i guess a a way to to lead in and then you can react to any of that if you if you would like is I, i listen to what you're saying and think about how uh, people today who are incarcerated and try to organize, uh, they would get shut down immediately for organizing. And uh, isn't it at the end of the interview or at the end of the chronology of, of events and what's going on with peer education programs, doesn't the program now uh, really rest in the hands of the institution? So um, you can almost say that to some extent, this kinds of organizing, um, it, to the extent that it continues to go on in prisons, has been de-radicalized a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, a, a few things in, in response to that. I mean, I think in response to the first piece that you were saying, I, I think it really goes to show like the, the danger of conspiracy thinking 
not only in prison but generally right it it, it seems like it's it's a sort of believable analysis a believable prospect right the government is racist and terrible so right we, and we know about COINTELPRO, so we could you know it's we know about the the tuskegee syphilis experiment right so it's easy to imagine something like well therefore the government must have you know killed quasi or or you know deliberately designed uh, hiv to to kill um you know black men and women and, and other marginalized people um but in fact right if if it's all just a sort of grand conspiracy then then there's not really anything to do. <laughs> there's, there's no way to there's, confront it. There's no there's no power there, right? If the government is always, you know, masterminding a kind of, you know, secret epidemic that could just wipe everyone out. Um, and so I think the kind of strength of of the work that David describes here, and the strength of similar AIDS projects that other political prisoners uh, started elsewhere in the country, including. Uh, David's uh, longtime partner, Kathy Bodine, who started an AIDS um, an AIDS project at Bedford Hills, the women's prison in New York, as well as similar efforts at, at various prisons around the country, is really right to sort of build people's uh, build people's sense of themselves, right? Build build people's ability to you know confront the the structures and institutions that that are oppressing them. Right in ways that conspiracy thinking sounds like it might, but actually, you know, sounds sounds like it might be a kind of political analysis, but doesn't actually leave anywhere anywhere to go. Um, and so I think that that's a real a real strength of that of that model. Right? And and I think it functions the same outside of prison as well. Right, people those conspiracy theories were circulating on the outside. Right, and groups like ACT UP and others had to um, had to challenge them on the outside as well to say no, like there are specific policies that would save lives, right? <laughs> and there, there are things that we know about how this disease operates and how, um, how you know, different government actors or different government agencies are preventing life-saving measures from, from, being, from being done. Um, and I think that, you know, it's always that, that risk of battling against the kind of um, co-optation while, while still wanting, right, those kinds of immediate uh, changes to, to take place. Um, and I think here we see a, a real tremendous variation across prison systems, right? Uh, I mean, David says, you know, he hasn't really seen much in the way of organizing in, um, in a sort of sustained grassroots way in, in New York State since, since the AIDS work really got sort of incorporated within the DOC program. Um, but then you look at, you know, a place like California organizing a successive series of hunger strikes against long-term solitary confinement in 2011, 12, and 13. Um, you look at groups like the Free Alabama Movement and, uh, and the national prison strike that happened last fall, the fall of 2016, um, and you see you know, a tremendous amount of, of organizing uh, around the country, and not just r- uprisings. You know, y- you mentioned my work with with Decarcerate PA. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of really strong organizing happening in Pennsylvania prisons to to end death by incarceration, um, or out here where I live now in Washington State. You know, groups like the Black Prisoners Caucus or the Concerned Lifers Organization really continuing that work, right, of, of peer education, of, you know, multiracial solidarity, uh, and, and really trying to organize in, in, inside prisons, right, uh, both in ways that white 
improve their immediate circumstances, but also that have have pretty strong, pretty direct connections to the kind of work that's happening on the street. Um, I think the kind of pressure cooker environment of prison, you know, makes things more more intense, but also offers some really strong possibilities. And so, so in the interview, David talks about, you know, how when they started working, you know, almost everyone responded with, uh, well, I'll just read it, right? He said, well, when I first asked prisoners what they thought back in 1987, the almost universal response was, we have to keep those people away, don't let them work in the mess hall, and so on. But as soon as we educated people about that, once those suffocating weeds of fear had been uprooted, people's humanity flowered. Within a month of when we started, several different individuals came up to me and said, tell those guys in the AIDS ward that they can come out without any fear because I'll be happy to walk the yard with them. After we broke that initial stranglehold, we got some of the most respected guys in the facility to sign up for the training. And so I think there is a, some real remarkable kinds of work that, that happens when, sort of at that, working at that sort of knife's edge of grief um, and working at that knife's edge of sort of institutional violence where people are able to, to come together with remarkable strength uh, and, and some remarkable success. A follow-up to that before we conclude is I, I really appreciate the way that you set up the interview with David. And I just wanted to give uh, you a chance to bring this into our interview uh, because you opened by saying prison is a grievous institution. And uh, you know perhaps you could just add a little to that uh, because I think that also informs a lot of the, the, the work and the dynamics of what uh, David and others who are organizing and even people today wh- who are trying to organizing what, what, what they're trying to do when they're working within prisons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think I, I got really in, you know, into this work through supporting uh, political prisoners that like, like David and, and others who have been incarcerated, you know, since the early 1980s or, or for some of them even since, you know, the early 1970s. Um, and I think to me that when I started corresponding with people as a, as a teenager, it was a real eye-opening lesson about the history and, and politics of repression and state violence in, in the country. And the more that I did that work, you know, and you could see that across, you know, people's sentences, right, and the sort of sentence disparity. You could see it across all the parole denials for for uh, for those who are parole eligible. And, you know, you could see it in the kind of common cause that people who were incarcerated for their work as part of social movements also, you know, fared alongside people who who became activists once they were incarcerated, but but suffered a number of the same conditions. And so responding to, you know, the the always urgent demands to fight against medical neglect and health abuse inside of prison or to respond to the kind of deliberate, you know, rationing of food and, you know, re- reduced quality and quantity of food in prison, uh, or the kind of rallying to secure people's parole and and respond to their parole denials, you know, there, there's a heaviness to that, right? Or the kind of fundraising appeal to, to make sure that someone's mother can can visit them before you know, before that, that parent passes away or that someone's kid can, can see them uh, and have a kind of regular contact with their parent who's incarcerated. Um, you know, that, that's all very fraught. It's, it's very terrible things for people to experience. And I think as, 
as organizers, as radicals, as human beings. Um, I think we are the better for it when we allow ourselves to feel the heaviness of it, right? And when we can actually, you know, greet and make common cause with, with other people who may not come from social movement backgrounds, but who whose lives and, and ideas and, and heart have been, you know, shaped by these really grievous, awful situations. Um, and so I think opening ourselves and allowing ourselves to feel that kind of emotional intensity um, can be and, and really has been the basis of some of the most transformative work against the prison industrial complex. Thank you, Dan, for uh, sharing uh, all of that with us. Uh, just for people who are interested in the book, uh, first off, the piece that you wrote is uh, the chapter is titled Grief and Organizing in the Face of Repression, the Fight Against AIDS in Prison, or rather the contribution is titled that. And again, it's in the book Rebellious Morning, the Collective Work of Grief, which is from AK Press. And so we'll have a link uh, when we share the interview so people can go purchase the book if they would like to get a copy. Uh, and again, Dan, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola. Unfortunately, Rania Kalik is not able to join us this week. She's in Budapest working on a story for the new Redfish Project, which hopefully she'll be able to talk about with you on this show soon. Uh, she's been given a lot of opportunities for uh, exploring some important stories. What I'd like to do is, in this short segment here, uh, following that great interview with Dan Berger, is talk to you about 2018. What would you like to hear from us on Otherized Disclosure in 2018? Uh, if you're a you know, loyal listener, if you've been donating and supporting the show, uh, if you are just new and you're just hearing the interview and you kind of like what you've heard and you want to see if you could get some more from us, what would you like to hear in 2018? Uh, in the past, we've got suggestions for guests. Some of them we've been able to fulfill. Some of those requests are still outstanding and we hope to fulfill them in the coming year. But what would you like to get from us in 2018? And also maybe what could we uh, do for you? Uh, many of you have been, as, as I said, patrons and have done uh, quite a bit to help us keep this show going, especially as times have become hectic this year. I know there have been periods where you yourself might have questioned if this was still the unauthorized disclosure podcast that you had come to support, that you had come to enjoy. Uh, where was Rania? Why hasn't there been shows for a couple of weeks? Uh, and we've done our best to keep this going, and we hope to do a lot better in 2018 so things aren't as hectic, so that we are producing shows on a much more regular basis. Uh, and even so, uh, even so, the fact that things have been hectic, we still per produced 40 shows. We still produced quite a bit of, of programming this past year in order to uh, keep putting out the kinds of interviews and discussions that we think are hallmarks of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I want to let you know that what we're going to be doing is uh, 
the the goals that we have we've set them so that we can reward people who are supporters of the show and we maybe haven't done as good of a job of of keeping these up of communicating these to people who are supporters of the show but for people who are donating this is what I would like you to know we have 134 patrons right now and going into the new year if we can reach 150 patrons Every single person who is donating $7 or more will be sent an unauthorized disclosure tote bag. Uh, I, will, I will get your address. Uh, we will get your address and send you the bag. And uh, this will just be um, a small way of showing our appreciation beyond the kind words, beyond uh, the sort of regular gestures that we give to you on the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast every week. Uh, and and so I think, uh, you know, you all are a critical part of keeping this going. And I, you know, I'm always searching for ways to make that clear to you because definitely without you patrons, um, we probably would have no show. Uh, we probably would not be able to keep this going uh, just because um, Rania has her work overseas in Budapest and, and in Berlin, and she was based in Lebanon, and then I have my work uh, running the uh, media organization Shadowproof. And so uh, this has been something that has been a really good project for both of us where we can come together and bring our experiences, uh, shared and unshared, and put together a, a show that uh, I think numerous people have found to be enjoyable. Uh, going forward, um, let's just talk briefly. Uh, we don't have a lot of time this week to talk about uh, topics, or, or I wasn't planning to do a long monologue with you about some of the news of the past week, but I did want to mention, because it's a, a big deal, uh, that I uh, wanted to talk about the tax bill that was rammed through uh, by the GOP uh, uh, on Saturday morning, early in the a.m., you know, one or two o'clock in the morning, uh, they passed this bill. Over 6,000 lobbyists, uh, corporate lobbyists, uh, worked for uh, these senators and gave their recommendations, and it was developed to fit uh, their needs. It mostly fits bigger, uh, more massive corporations. If you're a smaller business, uh, it, it doesn't fit your needs. And then beyond that, we're talking about uh, distributing wealth to the top, going to the 1%, people in the bottom 60% uh, being asked to uh, you know, take only a, a meager temporary cut. And in fact, uh, as this uh, is going to unfold in the coming years, uh, people who are in lower and, and the middle class are going to see their taxes rise. Uh, meanwhile, these executives that are running these massive corporations that are flush with cash are going to pay less and less. Um, not only that, if you've read some of the journalism that has been put out either by The Intercept or other organizations, um, maybe even David Sirota, you've seen these sort of giveaways um, particularly to people, whether it's the you know the executive running the Blackstone Group, or you've got giveaways to the beer or alcohol industry, 
Uh, you've got special giveaways to the airlines. Uh, you've got a special giveaway to uh, car dealerships so that they can sp pay less taxes on their showrooms. So uh, the, the, the whole idea is that this was going to spur economic growth. Uh, but so far, there have been no studies that have been put forward to show that this means in which they're going about cutting taxes will spur economic growth. Quite simply, what we are dealing with here are people who are parasites, and they're and they're and they're and they're just going to suck every last drop of money that they can get. You know, these are the same people who ideologically are going to come after the lower class, the poor people of this country after this is done because the deficits are so high, they're going to want to gut or privatize Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security. They're going to want to take away programs that they claim this country cannot afford anymore after they have run up a trillion or a trillion and a half, uh, uh, one and a half trillion dollars in order to appease and please and service the corporations that fund uh, their political campaigns, who they think are, um, you know, much more American and a backbone of this country than the millions upon millions of hundreds of millions of people who uh, are living in this country and actually do vote for these senators who decided to ram this bill through. And I know that's not to excuse the House, but um, you know they. They bill the Senate as the quote-unquote um, more uh, adult body of government. The Congress, uh, in, in Congress, the House uh, is the place where, you know, Obamacare repeal was passed uh, how many number of times, and yet the Senate could never get the votes. So the the makeup, the, the, the tenure, the way in which the House functions is much more like a frat house compared to the Senate, typically, uh, if, if I could put it in that sort of a, of a layman term. Uh, so what can we do? How can we fight this? I think that like going forward, uh, as we put this podcast together on December 3rd, uh, it's probably uh, we can expect that this will pass. And so we should prepare to unravel and undo it with the same zeal that the Republicans wanted to unravel and undo uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you know, their ideology uh, was to pass these tax uh, breaks for, for corporate executives. And, you know, we should tear and unravel that as quickly as possible as we can. So what can we do in order to fight back? Uh, rather than giving in to cynicism and accepting that these are always going to be law of the land, what can we do? Well, we still need to know our history. We still need to be aware of the way in which politics have functioned in the past uh, 25 years. And uh, these are politics that are very familiar to anyone, especially people who have been supporters of uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and, and his campaign. And this show has been um, rather sympathetic 
toward him, but that's mostly because we appreciate the independence that he has displayed against the two major political parties and the way in which he's willing to call out the 1% and the corporate backers of this country that are plunging us deeper into ruin that are going to be responsible for not only ending our lives but their own because the way in which they are so devoted to capitalism is destroying our planet and putting us on a path towards uh, complete extinction. I don't think that's an exaggeration anymore. We have headlines every other week about the devastation that is being done to the planet. And so it's something to take very seriously. The stakes are actually really high in the way in which this tax bill is being passed and the fact that it even has a component tucked all the way at the end in order to get Lisa Murkowski's vote from Alaska, they're going to open up drilling in the Alaskan Wildlife Refuge. And uh, that's going to be hugely devastating, and it is not what we need if we're going to fight climate change and, and seriously do something to give children and our grandchildren and any other future generations a chance to live on this planet. So... This is serious. These are terms that so far this bill isn't being talked about. You don't talk about this bill generally if you're on CNN, Fox News, or MSNBC as like the bill and what its impact's going to be on the environment, but you definitely should. You know, in fact, there are sections of the bill that uh, as, as, as far as language goes, it's hard to parse and understand if you are just not that familiar with tax policy, but two... Uh, just a, a general observer, it's clear that oil companies, energy companies are getting tax breaks and they're going to be able to continue to emit and pollute. Uh, and in fact, I've read that there are ways in which this might actually be trying to discourage investment in wind or solar energy, which is in fact the kind of energy that we need to move to to have less of an impact on the carbon uh, emissions that we are putting into the atmosphere of this planet. And so uh, what can we do? Well, uh, John Walker is uh, a writer who has uh, done some really great work on the Affordable Care Act. He's a, a journalist who is uh, very familiar with dynamics when it comes to politics in Congress. And he contributed a story to Shadowproof this past week uh, it was headlined, History Suggests Democrats Are Unlikely to Repeal Unpopular Tax Bill If It Passes. And uh, it's passed the Senate. Um, as we're doing this show, it has to be reconciled, the process where the House and the Senate have to come up with a version that they can both uh, agree upon, and then Donald Trump can sign it into law, and then everyone um, can celebrate um, getting richer and more flush with cash than they already have. And so this is a very unpopular bill. There are a lot of people who do not like this tax bill, and they already know the sort of uh, swindle that is going on. But we should be aware that the last time the Republicans pushed through tax cuts, they were able to make it law, and the Democrats did not do anything to repeal and replace those tax cuts. Uh, if you, as Walker uh, reminds everyone in this piece, 
uh, he says that the second Bush tax cut, which was called the Jobs and Growth Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2003, passed under the same sort of theory that if you give these corporations a lot of money, then they're going to start hiring people and they're going to be able to bring money back into this country and we're going to be able to reboot growth and everyone's going to uh, be raised. And if, if, if they can help us raise ourselves up from our bootstraps, then we're going to be able to all stand on our two feet. That was the theory. And Vice President Dick Cheney came down and cast a tie-breaking vote uh, and the Democrats were using it in order to win people's support. They were they were campaigning on this idea that we needed to repeal these tax cuts. But then what happened? Uh, did President Barack Obama allow the tax cuts, tax cuts to expire? Uh, he did not. Did he uh, uh, commit to ending the cuts, especially for people who are making money over $250,000 a year? No, he did not. As, as John Walker writes, he cut a deal with Republicans in 2010. Um, he uh, uh, later in 2012, when the Democrats did not have uh, as much power as they did in 2010 or 2008, uh, they cut a deal to make most of the tax cuts permanent and only raise the rate for individuals with an income over $400,000. And, and as, as you can see, there was a full compromise in order to allow uh, wealthy people and corporations to keep this money that had been moved to them and, and, and given to them. And so that's something that we should think about because in 2018, it's going to be all about reelecting Democrats. It's going to be all about um, the so-called resistance, um, as uh, the Clinton Democrats have, have, have termed it. Um, and it's become a sort of branding in order to fight Trump. But it's been hard to take the resistance as being genuine. Uh, and it's something that we have to be skeptical, skeptical of, unfortunately. We have to wonder who these people are and whether they actually are engaged in resistance. And, and that's not to create division and that's not to make it harder in order to fight Donald Trump, but we really need to talk about getting to the root of problems, and we don't want to engage in the same sort of strategies and tactics that were engaged in 10, 15 years ago, which resulted in in, in the very sort of uh, measly and, and, and not so great kind of challenging of President George W. Bush. And, and you can say that the stakes are even higher at this point. Uh, I mean, uh, so far, although we're not there in the presidency, but we don't have a new uh, war. We don't have something like the Iraq war with President Donald Trump. But I suppose give it time uh, because um, as, as we head into this next year um, and, and, you know, as, as we headed in deeper to Donald Trump's presidency, we can expect some kind of a nightmare possibly, although... Uh, with Bush and Obama, we've been able to lay the foundation. Uh, the country was able to lay a foundation. The, the national security state, the military-industrial complex, has free range to basically drone, kill, and, and bomb just about anywhere uh, in any Middle Eastern country. And they're opening up Africa to these kinds of 
operations. Uh, there's a new drone base in the last week uh, that was uh, publicized um, in, in, in news media reports in Niger. Uh, and so we see this really uh, incredibly sharp escalation in activity. Uh, arms sales, um, if you're, if you're uh, someone who is familiar and pays attention to the global arms trade, uh, then you know that like in the past uh, year, we've seen so many arms deals uh, that have been uh, pushed through that, that Donald Trump uh, is uh, become one of the main salesmen for Boeing or Lockheed Martin or any of the major arms manufacturers here in the United States. And, uh, you know, interested in giving those kinds of companies tax breaks, inter interested in helping the people who run those companies and the, the companies themselves, you know, making it possible for them to keep more of their cash instead of giving it back to us. I mean, we allow them to live among us. Shouldn't they have to pay something in order to uh, exist? But it's almost the other way around. It's almost the other way around in, in the eyes and in the, in the minds of the GOP, um, and in maybe even some corporate Democrats think that we should um, bend down and uh, put our hands together and thank them for uh, making this country so great. Um, and, and in fact, we allow them to be in our country, and in some ways, we permit them to uh, continue to destroy parts of our country, uh, even when there are reasons why. We should see our government taking action in order to dissolve them so that they do not cause more destruction and ruin. You know, especially if you're talking about coal companies or especially if you're talking about you know, something like uh, the Sinclair Broadcast Group that spreads um, uh, propaganda on our public airwaves. Um, and, and what you see right now is a... Is a Anyone who is in a position of power in a corporation truly seizing upon the moment with Donald Trump. And I think, you know, it, as much as we've uh, said that Russia Gate is a lot of overhyped uh, nonsense, uh, there are elements that are true that we have acknowledged. Uh, between Rania and myself, we've acknowledged that there was something going on. I mean, obviously, parts of Donald Trump's campaign. Uh, and his transition team, they were reaching out to people in Russia, and they want to do business. This is global capitalism. They didn't think that there should be a division between the United States and Russia. They, with Rex Tillerson and some of these other people who are running parts of our government, thought that there should be open exchanges of uh capital between Russia and the United States and that the uh, sanctions would get in the way of them being able to make the kind of money they want. It's not that they're disloyal Americans, it's that they're um, greedy fucking capitalists and they want to make money. Um, and so uh, that's 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 been uh, something that has occupied a lot of attention because this investigation has Escalated. We have Michael Flynn now um, uh, pled guilty to a felony and uh, possibly going to give Robert Mueller and his investigation some more uh, transition officials, make it possible to implicate them and maybe even uh, charge them with crimes. And I think people who are in power in these corporations are wondering if 
there's any reason why Donald Trump may not be president um, next year at this time in December 2018? Is it possible that this investigation will get him? And so they are moving very fast with their agenda. They are trying to get as much done as they can before we are able to stop it. And, and while there are uh, racist, there are homophobic, transphobic, there are sorts of cultural uh, agenda items that we've been able to stop, uh, this is where a lot of the power lies. The power lies with capitalists and what they're able to do, and, and, and they have been very good at moving as quickly as they can to make sure that they're able to get something out of Donald Trump before Donald Trump is gone. And so uh, we need to be mindful of how we can fight back and we need to be mindful that Democrats are going to be weak and they're going to act like they have a spine and they're going to pretend they have guts and they're going to talk aggressively, but they're also going to be willing to give that up as soon as it's easy for them to cut a deal and cut a compromise and get something that can make them look good to us. And we shouldn't be satisfied. We shouldn't let them do anything less than unroll and uh, unravel and repeal uh, this tax bill, uh, which is just, uh, there is no defense of this tax bill that is reasonable. There is no defense. And even if you tune into CNN, it's hard to find a coherent defense of the tax bill. This past week, I found that it was very um, hard for anyone who came on and was pro-tax bill to say anything that made any sense and, and that could convince any anchors um, because, like like I said, they talk about growth. Where's the evidence? These people are opposed to deficits. Why are we adding $1.5 trillion to it? Just by their own ideology, just by their own philosophy, it shouldn't have passed through Congress. So... Thank you for listening to the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. Hopefully next week, the next time that we put out a show, we will have Rodney Kalik, and uh, we will have an excellent episode for you of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.